talking. <laughs> so Bird has just I suggested a bird after her mental breakdown last week. In, that, okay, but in the spirit of this episode, yeah. this does go along with it. It does. So anyway, I suggested to Bird that she go back to therapy. And she was like, well, I'm going to Italy. Like, I can't see someone every week or whatever. And I was like, well, there are so many virtual options. So she's using better like, help. Better help. We couldn't decide if it was is better, it better health. health. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was better health. And I'd, li- I'd seen the ads for better health or what I thought was better health all over, like podcasts and stuff. But my this issue... Is, this is not an ad. Yeah, this is not an ad. This is just my life. My issue was that I couldn't find a therapist that could work with me, like, cross states. Like, a lot of therapists, they can't even do Zoom video calls. They can only work in the state they're licensed in. So finding a therapist to, like, move with me to Italy was going to be a difficult task. So I signed up on the website betterhelp.com, and I filled out this questionnaire. It took, like, 10 minutes, probably. And you literally put all the details of your life, like your religion, all this stuff, you know, what you're dealing with. You write a little excerpt about yourself. Well, I just got matched with my therapist. I just got an email that I got matched with my therapist. And I was just telling Allie that I wish I could like copy and paste everything that my first therapist knows. Well, she was like, what if I don't like this person? And I was like, well, you just keep going until you find <laughs> someone you like. And we were just saying how much easier it would be if you could just have like a one pager of like all your traumas, your history, and you just gave it to them ahead of time. I know. It's like I spent so much time with my last therapist talking about these in-depth things in my life. And now I'm going to have to rehash it out with her. But you know what? It'll be fine. It is what it is. Anyways. <laughs> anyway, I think that this was one of both of our favorite episodes we've ever Definitely done. the most, I think, powerful episode for yeah. me that I've ever recorded. And because it is pretty rare. Actually, it's not rare at all for me to cry. It's actually pretty <laughs> common. <laughs> But I feel like I sat through most of this interview with Dr. Mondo with just like tears in my eyes. Like it was so powerful and so moving. And I just cannot advocate enough for an episode, I think, more than this one. Yeah, we dive into all of the the things. We really wanted to talk to someone about brain spotting. And I, of course, wanted Trish to come on, but she couldn't because of ethical reasons. Trish is Allie's therapist. Being my therapist and everything. Who we um, talk about every single episode. <laughs> that might be Yvette, my new therapist. Trish, we might talk about Trish her. Trish gets some major airtime. We love her. Um, anyway, and so she couldn't come on. So it's actually like such a God thing that I found Dr. Mondo because I was just looking online of experts on brain spotting. And I came across this article with Lindsay Vaughn and she was talking about how brain spotting has changed her life and how she worked with Dr. Mondo and he was just incredible. And so I reached out and he was able to come on and do this episode. And he just is such an amazing speaker and just so knowledgeable. And we're just lucky to have him on the show. Yeah. I felt like he spoke into my soul. I was like, I trust you and I love you. (laughs) You know, you just meet people and you're like, they're so moving and they're so powerful. And that was him. And um, we talked a lot about trauma. Well, I think it goes back to what we talked about last week with Sarah. When you're talking to people that are doing the work and like have, you know, really dug deep and healed themselves and are just really working to become the highest version of themselves, it just flows so easily. Definitely. And that was for sure this episode. It was such a good one. But I guess before we go into the interview, let's run through our week. This is an exciting day for us because we're We're together together right now. Recording from our mom's closet because it's the only place we get (laughs) decent Wi-Fi. We came to my mom's closet. We like shut their bedroom door, shut the bathroom door, shut this other little door that connects the bathroom to the closet. Basically hunkered down in here to try to find some peace and calm. But it is always fun we get to record an episode together. So we're Mm -hmm. happy to be together today. So obviously, besides being with me, what's your high of the week? Um, So... We are recording this a little bit early because next week, I'll go into something that I'm excited about. Next week, I'm going to be in Mexico. The day this comes out, um, I'll be in Tulum. But this week, I would say my high would just have been having Libby and Kynan come to town, having all my people um, at home, really taking some time to like rest and recuperate. Allie taught me a bunch of really good things this weekend about time management. That is a skill that I do not have really any sort of handle on. So um, just taking time to be at home and having all my people at home, watching baseball. Our Father's Day was great. It was really Mm -hmm. fun to have me and Allie here. So that's probably my high. My low? Huh. What would my low be? 
And maybe you just don't have a low. Maybe you just rest in the high. Yeah, I think my yeah, honestly, couldn't really think of a low right now. I think maybe just like coming off of being overwhelmed, but I'm feeling really positive about yeah. my new time management strategies. And I'm, I can't stress how important time management is. It is the only thing. We'll just you'll see you'll see such a difference just being able to manage time. And I've seen I've worked with people that have no time management skills, and it just kind of trickles down from the top to the bottom. Because then, like, if you can't manage time, the people under you can't manage time, and then everyone's just like running around, spinning in circles, stressed, overwhelmed. And I think basically to sum up what I told you is you have to break it into bite-sized pieces. Like you can't look at a project from a bird's eye view. You have to hone in and be like, okay, from two to three, I'm going to work on this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to turn my phone on airplane mode and I'm just going to dive in and dig into this. And then when that time's up, I'm moving on. Definitely. And with me working in social media, I feel like a lot of people listening to this, you probably work remote. Now after COVID, I feel like everyone's kind of working remote in some facet. A lot of people also work through on social media. And it's just so easy to have your attention pulled in like a million directions. So I literally started by taking printer paper and I laid it out across our kitchen table this morning. And I wrote like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I went through everything that I already have in my calendar. And then I know like what time I have open this week. And it's crazy. It's like already before I factored in time to work, I have so many things to do this week. So now I can really look at, okay, I actually have this amount of time to work or this amount Mm -hmm. of time to do this. And it's not overwhelming because you have a plan. And it actually made me feel really calm. So if you're someone who feels like you live kind of in a chaotic energy when you're not really flowing or like you're in a transitional state, like I am right now being at home. Take control of the things that you can control, which would be your time management, your like physical, mental health, things like that. Like things you can control makes you feel a lot less chaotic. And yeah, that's what I, I really want to do an episode on time management. Yeah, that would I be amazing. Would be I think we will have so that helpful. on deck soon. Okay. Anyway, I guess for me, my high was being in Oxford for a long weekend and just really getting back into running. I kind of had forgotten how much I love to run in the past two mornings. I've gotten up and run the trails near Ole Miss. And I really just hadn't run in a while, I guess, because it's been so hot. But I just loved it. And I left my phone in the car. I left my AirPods. And I just ran and like got into the rhythm of what was going on around me. And just it was so peaceful and calming. And I think I've truly missed that. So I'm excited to get back into that. I ordered new running shoes, new gear. I'm such a gear person. I have to have all the gear. Yeah. Um, you and dad are big gear <laughs> people. We are. Um, so yeah, that was a high point for me this week. Um, and then a low point. You know, some days you just get into like a really bad mood and you're just like snappy and you put your foot in your mouth. Yeah. And you want to like hurt everyone with your words. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I kind of had a day like that on Thursday and Friday. So I guess it was two days. Oh, I remember the low. My air conditioning broke at my house. Oh my gosh. And ours (laughs) broke too. Yeah. Our AC literally conveniently the day that Kynan arrived and then Libby was coming the following day completely goes out. Yeah. And so mine, we were having a heat wave in Nashville. It was like consecutively a hundred degrees for like three days and our air decides to break. So that was a bummer. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I don't know what I was I think saying I was... that I didn't have low. I was literally hot <laughs> for like six days. And it wasn't as drastic for me, I think, because living in Hawaii, we didn't have AC. Yeah. And then moving to Italy, everyone's like, get ready to not have AC. And I'm like, Leah, look, I've been doing the no AC thing. And when I got here, I was actually just really cold, like all the time, because I think I wasn't used to AC. But like six days of no AC, I felt like I was just like, you know, like you feel like wet, yeah. like you're sweaty right. for days. Same. Yeah. Horrible. I mean, luckily we were able to get ours fixed like the next day and we had somewhere to stay the night that it was broken. So very grateful for that. But yeah, I think I was just in a bad mood, honestly, because I was so hot. I think that's what it was. It was just putting me in a yeah. fuck. There's two factors that make me really effing angry and hangry, that is being hungry and yeah. being hot uh-huh. <laughs> and like so if I'm hungry and hot it's like oh my gosh like I'm gonna have to go apologize I feel that on a deep level um but yeah what's something you're excited about I definitely had to make some apologies this week <laughs> <laughs> um something I'm excited about is so I am getting global entry bird just talked about 
her experience with global injury a couple episodes ago. But yeah, I could not get an appointment anywhere except Miami. And it was like this random time. So I have an appointment on Friday. So I'm turning it into just a weekend in Miami. Herb and I are going to go down for... <laughs> Why is that funny? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I just really can't get over the young boyfriend. Still, I'm not over it's it. It's been months. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> I just love Herbie so much. And when you say Herb, it makes me laugh. And also the fact that Erica thought it was <laughs> pronounced Herb, <laughs> like, the, like in the gardens. And oh my God. Anyways, keep going. Anyways, so we're going to Miami. We're staying at this really fun hotel called the Good Time Hotel. It's Pharrell's new hotel. It's really cute. And um, we're just going to have a fun little weekend. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I think that your Miami trip's coming up that super fun and my Tulum trip, they're both kind of last minute sins, but that's just how I've been rolling lately. Both of us are planners. I was just telling Ken this the other day. I was like, you know, I'm usually such a planner. Like my trips are always well planned in Mm -hmm. advance. And lately I've just been full sending these last minute things, but maybe that's helping me become less controlling. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun. There's a lot of good things to look forward to and a lot of fun things coming up. And something that I'm really looking forward to is re-listening this interview. Yeah, like, same. I think I'm going to listen to it and cry because it was so good. <laughs> and I like couldn't really cry while we were interviewing him because it would have been like really weird, I think, if I would have <laughs> just been like, <laughs> so let's talk about drama. But it was just such a good interview and I really feel very like filled up. Yeah. You know, those people that you just kind of feel like, like you said, like you feel lit up after talking to. He's He was definitely one of those for me and I'm really excited to share this episode yeah it's like I feel like we're best friends now right and so I feel like I need to talk to him more often because I feel like I'm (laughs) I'm sure you could hire him um but yeah so yeah Dr. Mondo is a psychologist and speaker he is the founder and CEO of Cheat Code which is a nonprofit that helps to um teach different organizations teams how to navigate trauma and how to kind of provide resources for working through that. And he's also a mental strength coach. He works with a lot of sports teams and professional athletes, including the Titans. Yeah, I'm really encouraged by this episode. And I really do think that no matter what place you find your life in right now, listening through this, I really think there's big takeaways from all the topics that we covered with Dr. Mondo. So And yeah, if you're interested in doing, we didn't talk about this in the episode, but I kind of wish we would have. If you're interested in finding a therapist that does brain spotting or EMDR or any of these techniques that we talk about, I think the best step to finding someone is just doing some research, Googling. Um, There's a website called Psychology Today where you can find local psychologists and what they specialize in. And then like, you know, Bird was saying earlier, there's a lot of online resources and apps that you can also try out. But also remember, like I've said this before, but finding a good therapist is like dating. You have to see a couple people before you find the one that clicks. Yeah. So I'll keep you all updated on my better help journey. Hopefully I can find my goal. I think is just to find someone I can really connect with and talk to no matter where I'm living. That would be really great. Um, But this will be a fun little update. I'll keep you guys updated on my better help journey. I guess without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Mondo to Go Call Your Sister. I hope you guys take away as much from this episode as we did. do an episode on brain spotting for a long time because it's something that I do and you know my therapist couldn't come on because of ethical reasons and so I did research and wanted to find someone else that could speak on it and I came across an article and you were mentioned in it and so then I found out that you were um, you worked with the Titans and I was just really excited to um, learn about you and just thank you for coming on the podcast thank you so much of course yeah it's um, I think it's really cool to hear more people talking about brain spotting. And um, I'm just really passionate about really not so much even brain spotting. I'm passionate about anything that's going to help people heal fast. Because I think that one of the biggest issues we have is that a lot of people don't get into therapy because they think it's going to take their entire you know lives to talk through um, getting to a place where they feel like it's improved. And, and so brain spotting is what changes that. So it gets more people in. And then efficiency wise, we have a huge shortage right now of folks that are able to actually help as therapists. So we need models that, that work fast, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's important to keep getting the, the word out there. Absolutely. So 
I guess let's just jump into it with the first question. Um, can you tell us about your journey into becoming a therapist? Yeah, yeah. The the you know the journey to becoming a therapist I think really started with it started with the story of my dad. You know, I'm a I'm a junior. My dad is um, Armando Gonzalez Senior, and he's full blooded Mexican. Uh, was born in Mexico City. My dad. Um, yeah, I think when people think Mexico, to be perfectly transparent, I don't think people think of the experience my dad, you know, had. He 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 lived in this neighborhood called Polanco, which if you ever get a chance to go to Mexico City, uh, you'll want to go there. It's like the Rodeo Drive of Mexico City. Mexico City is an amazing city, and uh, he lived in Polanco. And my my grandfather was the first heart surgeon in Mexico City, and um, you know, so funny because I didn't learn that till later in life. And I was in Chicago once having a drink on a rooftop somewhere and somehow got in a conversation with someone from Mexico City. And they said, wait a minute, your grandfather was the first. I was like, wait a minute, how in the world? So anyway, that, that's my, 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 my dad's experience growing up in Polanco was um, you know, he, he lived in, in kind of an upscale neighborhood. And the reason I say that is because in Mexico, there's always been stigma around mental health struggles. But even so, even more so in affluent neighborhoods and communities, and that's true across the globe. And you know, this was again in the in the sixties and seventies. And so, my dad had his his own struggles with mental health. And and that, when you ask the question of how I got here, it really goes back to him. Um, I was at the age of three. My parents divorced. He moved back to Mexico, and I grew up with my mom as an only child with a single parent mom, and she worked all the time and. Um, you know, we, we lived in a duplex and we didn't have a whole lot, but we had each other. And, um, so I think those two elements of how I became a therapist are important because it, it was my dad's struggles with mental health and he self-medicated through alcoholism that eventually took his life when I was 15. And it, it leads a young person to question a lot of things like what happened to my dad, how would life have been different? You know, typical grief questions. Um, how would my life have been different if I had him in my life? Um, am I going to be like him one day? Am I going to go down the same path? How do I prevent that? Um, and then the other side of it is being raised by a woman. You know, I was raised always comfortable talking about my feelings, you know, very much uh, a, a guy's guy in terms of sports and things like that. But, you know, I felt most comfortable always being with women because, that's, I was raised by my mom and my grandma. Um, and so I think those two elements really played a role in me being set up to be a therapist. Um, and you know, my first career was sports broadcasting. I say career, I wasn't getting paid for it, but when I was a kid, I had a sports television show, um, in Sacramento where I worked with the Sacramento Kings and the San Francisco giants. And so I was really into sports and I didn't, and I knew I wanted to help people. And, uh, at the age of 18, I kind of had this, this moment, uh, when I was living in Newport beach at 18, where I was like, you know, what do I really want to do? It was an 18 year olds existential crisis, uh, which, which shows how, how much older I was living at the time to be having a crisis of like, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to help people or do I want to do the entertaining thing? And long of the short was I, I decided in that moment, no, I feel like I'm, I'm most gifted and equipped to help more than anything. And that's also where I feel the most on fire when I'm helping people. So when, in, you know, and just took that path and, and that's what led me to eventually become a licensed marriage and family therapist, get a doctorate um, degree in marriage and family therapy, become a professor. And, you know, I was in the very traditional sense, had my own practice working in a university. And then at a certain point just realized that I felt like I, like God was calling me to kind of do more, um, beyond that. And, um, and yeah, the journey then led to where I am today. That's so amazing. I feel like there's so many things that we could talk about there, but, um, yeah, I think that that's something that we resonate with closely. Our mom and brother were in rehab at the same time last year for mm -hmm. alcoholism, which is what led wow. me brain spotting and, um, oh, wow. Kind of kickstarted our whole family's journey into yeah. therapy because before I think we had that very stereotypical mindset, like something has to be really wrong to be in therapy, like someone has to, you know, pass away or something, we have to be grieving. And then after my mom and my brother started their recovery journey, we all kind of started our 
personal recovery journey mm-hmm. through that. So, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's huge. That's a huge point of connection. And how's everyone doing now? Great. Yeah. Everyone is yeah. thriving. My it's, brother just hit his one year, yeah. June 2nd, and my mom just hit her nine months. So Let's go. It's yeah. amazing. Doing great. But yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of leads me into the next question because I think something that we kind of discovered in all of that is like trauma isn't always this big capital T thing that's like life shattering. Sometimes it's like little baby trauma that just adds up and becomes heavy and before you know it, it has this huge effect on your life. So can you tell us a little bit about trauma and like what it is? Yeah. I think that, you know, clearly you, you both are educated on this stuff because you, you said the big T, right? There's big T's and there's little T's. So it sounds like, it sounds like, you know, that, and I, and I think that it's important that we all kind of get informed on that. You know, it's it, on a side to that. What's really cool is that psychology is one of the few things that actually just becoming educated on on it is an intervention in and of itself to empower you right so learning stuff like what is trauma and really getting clear on that definition is super powerful for all of your listeners today yeah there's the big t's that we think of and those are the traditional traumas of you know going to war um, being assaulted um you know verbal abuse physical abuse sexual abuse all, all the things that are hugely traumatic to a human being But then there's also other traumas that occur that are subjective, which to me is one of the more powerful and profound impacts that come from making this not just big T's, but also small T's. It basically says that you and I can meet and I have no clue what you've endured that has been traumatic to you, nor should I really be in a position to define what's traumatic. So I think what we've seen with trauma, and this has happened in the last 20 years or so, is that we understand now that the body's main mechanism is to protect you. So it's not to evolve. It's not to, you know, level up. It's not all the things that we hear in culture. That's not the body's job. The body's job is, you know, an evolutionary mechanism to just make sure you survive another day. And the way trauma uh, interacts with that system is that trauma essentially um, imprints something into the body and in the brain that says, we're not going to forget that. That's pretty important. Uh, In in fact, we're not going to do that again. And so the brain and and the body work together and and the body gets that initial jolt uh, when there's a traumatic experience. And again, I want to make this for the listeners, you know, this, there, there could very well have been a moment growing up. I guarantee all of us have this elementary school, junior high, high school, where we were severely embarrassed, right? Uh, We felt ashamed. Something happened, right? And if we really were nodding our heads, they can't see, but but like we all know that, right? I got them too, right? We all got them. And in those moments, if we told the story now, we would would minimize it because we're adults and we go, oh yeah, it was stupid. But they they were lame and they were being mean and I was just sensitive and young. So we'd minimize what actually is a small T. And if we went and looked at those moments, really, and and, and that's, there's a, there's a, those are micro T's that happen all throughout our life, where in the moment of embarrassment and shame, maybe it was because we expressed ourselves a certain way. And the body and the brain collaborate in that moment and go, well, we'll never do that again, right? We'll never. So we start editing parts of ourselves. So trauma has a huge impact, even on what people may consider a subjective small level on how we show up in the world, the decisions we make, the choices we make. And we're all walking around with this collection of big T's and small T's. And the body's basically saying, wherever there's pain, I'm going to avoid going there again. Uh, Wherever there's pain, the brain says, I'm going to create a negative belief to make you never want to go there again. Or whenever there's pain, and I experience that again, and it reminds me of that previous encounter, I'm going to start replaying the negative beliefs you had then, which is why when we heal trauma, negative beliefs also heal because so many of our negative beliefs are programmed beliefs that we said to ourselves during the traumatic experience, which is why some of us as adults still at times default to negative beliefs that we had as kids because of how strong and real that is in our body until it's resolved. Um, 
I know that's a lot, but, uh, but that, but that's, so yeah, the, the, the traumas can be big, they can be small and it's subjectively anything that impacts your central nervous system to feel like it's threatened and or in danger. And it leaves an imprint, right? Like there's, there are certain things that are going to happen today that we're not going to like, we might get cut off in traffic. We might have an argument with our spouse. However, at, if it's not too big at night, we'll go to sleep. And during REM state of sleep, if we're able to get there, our aura rings will tell us if tell us if we get there. Apple watches, if we get there, the brain will resolve it. And during REM state of sleep, it, it, it will resolve these things. But if they're too big to resolve, the brain will not be able to complete that processing, and it stays with us. And those are the things that we continue to get tripped up by over and over again as a result of incurring that trauma. You had a really interesting question about trauma yesterday. Which one? About generational. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because like you said, trauma, you especially things you can't work through, you carry it with you. And some people, especially I feel like our older generations, our parents, our grandparents, they didn't have the resources accessible to them that we have now to kind of work that through. So they carried it with them for their whole life. So is trauma generational and can it be passed down? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, the answer is yes, and the degree to 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 you know the degree to which that is true, we're still learning. Um, although, as you're explaining that to me, you said it in a way that I'm thinking, yeah, like we should have like some sort of like shirts or merch that we're wearing that basically is like, gee, thanks a lot, great grandfather, whoever, Carl, for now I'm dealing with your crap. You hear we are five generations later, great, great grandpa, whatever. And I'm dealing with your stuff. Thanks a lot. You know? Um, anyway, but that, it's funny. Cause it's like, yeah, I think there's two sides of this, right? So it goes back to nature versus nurture. The, I can speak more to the nurture than I can, more than I can speak to the nature, the nature we're finding more though, too, in that there was a recent study that came out over the weekend. I didn't read it all enough to, to be able to speak to it, but I know that the conclusion simply was that that trauma is passed down through genes, right? And it's not the first study to say that. So there is information that suggests from a nature, from a biological standpoint, our gene code is impacted by traumatic events. And therefore, when we, we are born, we are carrying some of that programming into us as well. It's, it's fascinating the implications for it, I think you could have a field day with with what it means. I think the big thing it means is that there's a chance we're dealing with some things that not, aren't necessarily from our past life, as some people may say, but they're from someone's past life in our in our lineage, right? And so that that's a pretty that's a pretty profound implication um, now that we're finding that out to be true. On the nurture side, trauma being intergenerational, if you ask any marriage and family therapist or systems therapist, they would have always told you that's true. Because when you look at a family tree, there's this really cool exercise we do sometimes in, in family therapy called um, a geneogram, where you look at, you basically map your family tree, but this isn't like, when did they get married? And you know, what did they do for a living? This is what, what was their dysfunction like, right? Like, what were they struggling with? Like, oh, wow, we can trace back for the last three generations that the, the male in the family was extremely critical and the, the wife to that male either divorced them for their being so critical or was heavily impacted by the emotional abuse. And oh, by the way, three generations later, we're still dealing with this. So that to me is very much intergenerational trauma that has been systemically passed down through learned behavior. And I, I, do you guys want to keep getting, am I getting too deep or should I go deeper? Well, we've actually done a genogram I before. think that's perfect. Oh. Kind of yeah. like, I feel like going off that, you know, you can obviously go super deep into family trauma, but I think on the positive side of that is that although it can be carried down. My mom was actually talking about this with us last night, but um, how you can make generational changes. So, you know, by my brother and my mom becoming sober and kickstarting this journey for our family of healing, that will be felt through generations as well. So that's the implications that I think to your point are the most important. I'm, you know, I, 
I'm, I don't mince words with, with setting up, you know, how dangerous our culture is living in terms of not addressing trauma. I won't mince words, but I also won't mince words on the side that I'm an optimist at heart and I see all of this as positive, right? You know, and I think if people knew to your point, if people knew or had the perspective, which we often don't have, we can barely have perspective past a month, past a day. But if we have perspective that is intergenerational, that's almost like an eagle eye view of the entire lived experience. I think it would push us in, in to endure more difficult moments of our change process. Because for your mom, for your brother, like that's a lot to change, right? But if I'm told in the process that do you realize you're changing something that has been traveling, you're, you're breaking, you know, you're pivoting hard in a different direction. You're breaking a chain. You're pivoting hard in a different direction. And think of what that impact that's going to have on the next generations as a result of that. They'll tell your story. Um, they'll, they'll engage in life differently as a result of you saying, even though this wasn't mine necessarily, it didn't start with me, but it continued with me and I put an end to it. Mm -hmm. How much more powerful would it be when we're going through our change processes? So I think that th those are the implications that, that to your point that we should really be focusing on is that when we see people change, many people have minimized just how incredibly impactful generationally speaking, their change has been. They have just said, well, you know, I changed my life and well, no, 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 you didn't just change your life. Yeah. You changed your kids' lives, your grand, your grandkids' life. You changed your neighborhood's life. You changed your friend group's life because when one person changes, it stresses change in all of the systems that that person is a member of. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just got chills. I know. I like that. had tears. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's awesome. It really is. Well, I like I said at the top of the interview, I've personally benefited a lot from brain spotting. And I've talked about it on the show before. But for people that might not be familiar with it, can you kind of give an overview on what it actually is and what it does? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I like to start kind of with potential objections. And many people, I think, um, object to brain spotting because of the name. Um, I've, I've gotten to be close with, um, have like, you know, biweekly supervisions with the founder of brain spotting, Dr. David Grand. And I told him, I said, you know, David, I got to be honest with you. It's almost like you guys were a small indie band that didn't really think about the name. And then you guys blew up and now you can't change it. It's too late for branding purposes. <laughs> like, is there any way we can go away from this brain spot? He was like, well, he's very logical. Well, let's name this because if you think about it, he's got I said, look, I'm not doubting the logic behind the name. I'm just saying maybe a better name is out there, right? Yeah, rebranding. So we're, we'll hold a think tank for your listeners who have new names of what to call this. <laughs> Other than brain spotting, it's funny because, you know, when we started our company in our nonprofit cheat code, that became a force of brand in and of itself. And many people associate brain spotting with cheat code, um, which it kind of works to that point where we're, we're any way we can shift away from the name, but that's not to labor it too, too much. That's really the only, only downside to this, this methodology that was created by Dr. Grand. It's Dr. Grand is a, uh, you know, he was at, at one point an EMDR therapist. He's from Long Island, New York. And, you know, there's a big event in, in the course of trauma and it was nine 11. And, and, you know, during, during 9-11, you had so many traumatized people, and it was a, a moment where EMDR had an opportunity to shine. And many people experienced traditional talk therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy alongside other people experiencing EMDR. And they found that people were healing faster when they experienced EMDR. They were able to get back to living their lives. You know, and, and if for listeners that have never heard about the, the difference between these, these therapies, you don't wipe out the memory. You know, you, you can't, you just can't. So let's, let's start there. EMDR wasn't wiping out the memory of what happened to these, these victims and survivors of 9-11. It was simply allowing their brains to integrate it into their lived experience and continue to live their life with, with a perspective that's shifted around the events. Um, so never forgotten um, at all, but integrated in a higher quality of life post and a lot faster. So EMDR was doing that and David Grand, you know, being, you know, living in Long Island was impacted by 9-11, was practicing as an EMDR therapist 
And as he moved through the 2000s, he began in his EMDR work observing something that he thought was really fascinating. He found that people, when they were processing information in session, out, out of session, would typically look in different directions. And he just thought that was curious. You know, he's, that's interesting that they're looking in different directions. He, he then began to pay closer attention because one of the biggest parts of therapy for therapists, especially EMDR or brain spotting therapists is attunement. So being attuned with your client and noticing what they may be feeling. And so we started noticing in the EMDR sessions that they would be looking in directions when they were thinking of something traumatic and their, and their body was becoming activated. He also noticed that they'd look in different directions when they were talking about something that was positively impactful to them, right? So he took that a step further and he began to research that with a neuropsychologist and it led him actually to ophthalmologists who, who study, of course, the eyes. And, you know, the what he parrots back in that finding is that he learned from ophthalmologists that where you look affects how you feel. It's the simplest way. You know, the why behind it is probably for another discussion for another time. But where you look affects how you feel that when you look in certain directions, um, it's a natural gazing that we do to process, to access memories to access information. So, you know, David said, why don't we add this as another piece to EMDR? And that's essentially what spawned brain spotting. So brain spotting is EMDR plus adding in this intentionality around where you look. And the idea essentially is in a brain spotting session that you're going to listen to bilateral music that moves in one ear out the other, it pans left to right, but it's panning. And I've learned this from David. It's not panning with rhythm. It's panning never in a consistent rhythm. So it's, it's, it's basically getting your brain's attention. Hey, pay attention to me. And in doing that, it's triggering rapid eye movement, which triggers you to go into your deep limbic system. The deep limbic system is a region of our brain that, um, there's a lot of creativity, a lot of memories held there. Spirituality is held there. So it's bringing us into this deeper region of the brain, essentially saying, let's do healing in this region. You'll be able to remember things more. You'll be able to articulate feelings and, and almost relive them more from this region. And once that music is on, the therapist is then attuned with you and you're in this journey where it's kind of like, okay, it's very client-centered. The, the client is the comet and the therapist is the tail of the comet, just following the client. Where do you want to go today? Um, wh what are your goals? What what's coming up for you here? Should we go here or should we go there? And that third piece is the fixed eye position. So if we're in a session together and you told me that there was that moment in high school that I brought up earlier and you're like, okay, I'm thinking of it now. I can think of that time where I said something and the half the cafeteria laughed at me. In that moment, I'd say, okay, as you think about that scale of one to 10 on a sud scale, how impactful is that for you now? How much can you resonate with that and remember that? And you're like, oh, it's about a four. Okay, what happens when you look to the left of the room? What happens when you look to the center of the room? What happens when you look to the right of the room? And we'd be looking to see if there was a point where it became more activated. And you go, I don't know why, but when I look to the right, I'm just, it, it, for whatever reason, I don't know why, it's more vivid to me. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, should we start there? Or what do you, yeah, I don't know. Let's start there. Now, what happens if we go higher? What happens if we go lower? And what that essentially is doing is it's finding a point of activation. And then once we find it, we have you fixate on it with your eyes and look at it. And what's going to happen is your brain is going to kind of dip into this, this subcortical element of, of itself. And you're going to start almost, you, you jump on a raft and you, you could tell me if I'm totally, you know, um, butchering this, this, this explanation, but to me, at least, it's like you just jumped on a raft and you're going to start seeing a bunch of things. And at times the raft, the rapids are moving fast and you're like, oh my gosh, there's that, there's this, there's that. And my job as a therapist is just to hold space with you, make you feel comfortable, hold you in compassion, and just basically urge you to observe all the things you're seeing without judgment and just accept them, like really feel them. And by doing that, it's helping your brain resolve 
things. Mm-hmm. What, what, I don't know. You, you've done it. Does that? No, that makes sense. I kind of think of it as like riding like a, a bucking horse that you're just on and like, like it's going in a million different directions and you're just trying to like That's hold good. on until it, it gets calm and you can relax a little bit. And then you kind of like, I don't know, like the emotion, the intensity of the emotion around it just kind of settles. And that is good. Yeah. The bucking horse, because there is some, there are some moments that are intense and and that's the beauty of the setup is that you're not going through it alone. The therapist is there with you. And and that's so important. You know, you, you could break down all of why it works, but part of why it works too, and it can't be minimized is that connection. Because when you have someone that's reliving that with you and you're, um, I mean, think too of like, I, I do this a lot with, you know, men that have probably never cried in front of someone and now they're, they're bawling looking in this direction and they, and everything's coming out and they're feeling this release and there's someone across from them sitting there and just like encouraging them and maybe even experiencing tears too, because it's such a beautiful moment, right? Like, those moments become healing, not just for what you're working on, but also they create different experiences to where moving forward, the next time that you have emotion come up, you're probably more likely to experience it in front of someone. So it's, there's so many positive benefits from this stuff. Wow. That's so, I haven't done it yet personally, but I'm excited to, to get into it because it really has been so impactful for you and mom. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you a question real quick, if I can, what changes have you seen in her since she did it? Like, how do you know, like, is there anything that's noticeable to you? And you don't have to like make up things. For my sister or my mom? Yeah, for your, we'll, we'll start with your sister. Yeah, for your sister that you've seen her do brain spotting. What did you notice to be like, wow, like other than her saying it, it was helpful? That's a good question. That is a good question. I think I probably would be more able to speak on my mom just because yeah. she started doing it first and she's been doing it for like a longer period of time. But I think that my mom used to fixate on things a lot in the past and things that had happened to her. And I feel like through her doing brain spotting, Mm -hmm. she was able to work through them in a healthy way. So she doesn't really go back to the past as much when she talks about things or is working through things. I can tell that she's had a lot of healing for things. And, And also my mom will talk about things now that happened to her when she was young. And she like for her whole life, never considered them to be like, traumatic you know or like a big thing and then she'll talk about it and she's like actually that was a big thing for me I just didn't notice it at the time and I can tell that she's kind of worked through a lot of those things and yeah well I do think it's sometimes it's hard to see in someone you know like it's such a personal thing too you know yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah I think that those hallmarks like you said of being more open to discussing things, the sense of like being more present and not focused on the past. And again, I don't, we can go down so many rabbit holes, but we can also consider what that means too, for how we typically organize um, the way that we help people. And in the mental health system, often we just focus on the symptoms we see. We don't really have other than, you know, there's opportunities like with brain spotting to get to the root of where it is. And so sometimes when we see someone depressed and then maybe self-medicating through their depression, really what it is, is unresolved trauma that that's why they're in the past. That's why they can't get over that because it was so jarring to them that their brain never could fully integrate it. And they just ruminated on it. And then the only way they knew how to make the rumination stop was to self-medicate. And so if we started really seeing uh, the world through a trauma-informed lens, it would shift the solutions that we had for how to help people. Totally. Okay. And yeah, I think that it just kind of takes away that emotional charge around these memories that you might have that you can easily talk about, like my mom can. And um, so it's just a really, it's a really cool method of, of healing. Going off of that, can you explain a little bit about EMDR? I've never done it. Um, my mom talks about it all the time. I don't fully understand what it is, I and mean, I'm sure our listeners would would like to hear it from you as well. Yeah, well, uh, you know, actually, you probably know more about it than than you realize. It's, you know, I, I would say oversimplifying it, but but really, EMDR is brain spotting without the emphasis on the eye positioning. Um, and so, in the, in an EMDR session, you may listen to to music, or you may hold in your hands. Uh, 
like sensating, um, you know, pulsating, uh, devices that go, you hold them in one, each of your hands and then they, they pulsate or, you know, some people have heard of tapping where they'll, they'll teach you to tap. All we're trying to do is get bilateral stimulation going. It's almost like we're inviting you into your deep limbic system. So EMDR is just kind of a little more of a stripped down version of brain spotting is, is the easiest way to say it. Same thing though. Therapist is attuned with you. Uh, a high focus, I should say too, on being mindful of, uh, of what people learn in yoga, which is this meditation mindfulness element of like, notice what's happening in your body. Uh, notice what thoughts are coming through your mind and teaching you how to observe rather than be in those, right? Like, oh, I just noticed that thought coming up. Oh, I just noticed that when I spoke about that, my chest hurt. Oh, I just noticed I had this thought that seems weird to me, but you know, that your therapist would just coach you to just accept it and integrate it. So they're, they're very similar. Yeah. The whole feeling your body is one of the biggest things that I've learned just because I feel like I'm just constantly going and moving and achieving and striving. And it's like, no, let me just sit in my body for once and actually like feel what's happening and how it's relating to my emotions. I actually did EMDR in December now that we're talking about it. And I held the little pulsating things in my palms. And it was strange because these things were coming up. And in my mind, I was like, that's stupid. Like that isn't even worth discussing. Why am I even going there? And then my therapist was like, oh, what is it? And then I'm like, one time when I was six and I'm like, wait, <laughs> wait, what? And it seemed like the most minuscule thing in my life. And then it opened up this whole conversation. So I haven't done the full brain spotting, but I have done EMDR. And what was happening for you there? And this is super fascinating is that, you know, our brain stores information much like we store information, right? Like if, if someone's really compulsively organized, they might have a folder that has everything in their, their computer hard drive separated into folders, right? Our brain does the same thing. So we're just, the brain is associating and we pull up a folder that maybe it's a rejection folder and we could think of a rejection that happened this year. We can think of one that happened, you know, when we were six years old, um, maybe it's a, it's, it's a really, really stormy day folder, right? Where it's like, okay, maybe it's not about the emotion that was felt, but like on a stormy day and our brain is processing thousands upon thousands of pieces of information and it's got it multi-sorted. So one trauma might be in 10 different folders. We don't even know why it's coming up, which is why we always teach people who are going through it to just accept and not have to know, which is really hard because we live in a Western society. And I say Western because in our, in our part of the, the world, we don't believe something if we can't prove it or see it. Right. So we, wait a minute, I can't figure this out. Well, you know, you probably only know about what 5% of what your brain is perceiving. And yet we assume we should have it all figured out when these, these things come up from within us. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. So it teaches us to live in more of that uncertainty, curiosity, and openness. And, um, and that, and that's a, that's a, that's a skill that most of us probably were never taught until we get into these sessions. Going back to doing these sessions, especially you work with a lot of men, many of who are professional athletes, um, and you've seen them go through these emotional breakthroughs. A lot of men, you know, mental health isn't as normalized for men, especially these days. How can we support the mental health of the men in our lives? You know, I think that's a that's a great question. I think even that is, you know, like I make assumptions in my mind, whether right or wrong, just from the work I've done, like men are different regionally. I can tell you that because I travel a lot and California men are different than Southern men and are different from Northeast men and Northwest men and mid Midwest men. They're just, we're all different right now. We even even got out of the continent or the, or the country rather. Um, so I think, it, it, I think, you know, it, it's tough to, to, to say in general, what, how we can support men in all those contexts, because a man who, lives here in California, like I do, may be more ready to, to go further and deeper um, in their journey of exploration and their ability to talk about it. Um, I, think, I think the biggest thing that we can do is we can protest alongside them. And that's the biggest help. I think men, men need other men protesting some of the 
traditional traditional gender norms like you know men don't talk about their feelings like we need to protest that as men openly and directly and say that's that's bullshit we're we're going to talk about how we feel like that was outdated it never worked most of the people that practiced it were like going to the bar every night and you know like it is it is it's impossible right it's impossible standards so we're going to protest the absurdness of that and um and we're going to talk about things right that's i think but having women that i think men you know people talk about men are afraid to do that in front of other men i think men are afraid to do that in front of front of women i think you know and again i'm i'm speaking probably more to my experience as a heterosexual man but like i think as a man you're often most afraid not that your friends are going to what they're going to say about you but they're afraid that, that women won't still look to you as being providers or protectors or and again those are traditional ideas of of manhood but but I think a lot of men still want to have the ability to say, I can be those things and still not have, not be okay sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that I want you to be able to, uh, you know, whether you're my partner or you're my mother or whoever you may be, I want you to still be able to, you know, like not move away from a conversation when I open up and tell you how hard things really are and how much I'm struggling. I don't want you to walk away and then question whether or not I could still be a leader or whether or not I could still do what I need to do as a man. I think those are the biggest challenges. You hear another man in another room expressing himself, as you could see in our household, or you could hear there's active expression of emotions happening, even at the age of five going on six. Um, But, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's the biggest way is like, you know, women can support men and, in saying like, look, you're still a man in all the ways that you traditionally want to be, despite whether or not you open up and talk about what's going on or how you're feeling. I, th- I think that's a really big thing. And I think I'll say this too, and, and, I, and this probably isn't a, a super popular take, but I'll, I'll just say this too, of because you asked the question. I think <clears throat> culturally, for me at least, <laughs> I think that, you know, the, where we're headed a lot, in my opinion, personally, you know, I, I think we've, we've, we've reached a counterproductive state when it comes to um, the, the theories and philosophies we're practicing with, with, with gender identity. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that I rather us be less fixated on our pronouns and more fixated on our humanness mm-hmm. and saying that whether I have a boy and a girl, I have a son and a daughter. I can't tell you. I mean, sure. There's differences, right. Between boys and girls, of course. But at the end of the day, like he's in the other room right now crying because he's frustrated or he's sad. Right. And he has those emotions as a boy. My daughter has those same moments. I think that what we should be focusing more on is saying that it's okay for men to have sensitivity and they're still men. It's okay for women to have assertiveness and they're still women, right? Like we don't have to overly think about what that is and, and get overly concerned about the, the categories that places people in rather than just saying, let's just make it that these are human things. All humans have a desire to let out what's inside. All humans are, are impacted by things, even if it doesn't seem like they are, even if there's norms that say that men shouldn't and women should, all humans are impacted. I think that's the focus that I, w- I would love to see from our, from our culture. And I think women could help with that as well with, with men in just promoting that as well. I hope that makes sense. No, that's yeah. so powerful. I think just opening up that space to like either you be your partner, your dad, your brother, and just like letting them feel that you're a safe space to talk to about those things. And yeah. And not making it like you have to be this or th- like you have to be this or that you can't be both. Like you totally can, you can be an assertive woman, but also have compassion and be sensitive. That's you. So you nailed it. it. It's, it's parts. We all have those parts. We all have those parts. Why can't we just learn how to express, make peace, feel openness around that? I think that's how we could help men is to feel like they have a sensitive part. They have an emotional part, a vulnerable part. And, and to help them step into that without feeling like they have to sacrifice the other parts of who they are as well. 
I'm really excited. My company that I work for, Hello Sunshine, we're coming out with a documentary called Fair Play. It's going to be on Apple TV this summer, but it, it talks, it goes into depth about all of this and it's really fascinating. So I'm excited for people to watch it. Um, oh interested. yeah, that sounds awesome. I am. But yeah, um, this has been amazing. Uh, yeah, this has been Thank such you. an amazing interview. I've been, I feel like I, me and Ali have just been sitting here nodding yeah. and saying, <laughs> like, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You guys but, are good. Yeah, you guys are firing me up. I appreciate it. Like this has been such a. I like your uh, Titan shirt. I know. <laughs> you know that was not planned. Um, I had one of my baseball clients who I've worked with. My, my first baseball client I ever had, Dansby Swanson of the Braves, and so he's always giving me a bad time. He's like, "Dude, what are you like a walking billboard for the Titans now?" And I said. <laughs> Tell me this doesn't happen to you. They give you so much gear that you wake up and you're like, well, what, what's clean? And I've never worn that before. I'm going to throw that on. He's like, all right, fair point. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm always in Titans gear. Well, you're also um, the second guy we've ever yeah, had on you're the only show our second, besides our dad. Our, yeah, our father. <laughs> so. Wow. That is – hey, I'm honored by that. That's really cool. I love hearing from – I do too. It's a change yeah, of it's perspective. It's a good perspective shift. But we usually like to end the episode with two – short things. Um, the first one being, do you have an affirmation or a mantra that you're living by right now? I think of, uh, yeah, I think I probably got a couple that come to mind. I think mm-hmm. I, I would say one of the things I got the most mileage out of my entire life has been, uh, my mom saying, you know, what's the worst they can say. And she was posing that uh, as a young aunt to a young, ambitious child that when I was a kid, you know, at five years old, started practicing mock sports centers and then wanted to have my own show and then wanted to just always dream big and be like, well, why do I have to wait? Like 18, that's a long time. And she'd say, okay, well, what's the worst they could say? No. What do you lose? I think a lot of us are trigger shy to act on the things that, that we feel like are for us, the things we want, the things we desire, whether it's fear of failure, fear of rejection, um, self-doubt, whatever it may be, what's the worst they could say? No. And what do you lose then? I think that's, that is one as a child that I continue to, to live as an adult. And, um, you know, I, so that, that's huge. I think that the second one I'll say is there's every single person has a purpose and a calling and they were given unique strengths and or gifts to fulfill that calling every single person. And that, that to me is more than an affirmation. It's a worldview. It's a worldview I carry when I go into work with professional athletes. It's a worldview that I carry when I step into prisons to work with people that are behind bars. You can never based on your choices ever erase what has been written on you, on your heart, just like we have a unique DNA code, we have a unique calling, a unique purpose of why we're here. We never lose it. There may be seasons of life where we lose hope in fulfilling it. We lose hope and we start doubting whether we can can really contribute in the way that the purpose and the calling was intended, but we never do. And I think it's really important for people to never lose sight of that. And the third one, now I'm throwing the third one is is this, is that in order for you to really fulfill that purpose and calling, you have to unapologetically be you. And that's often what the world is waiting for. They're waiting for you, not waiting for the person you thought you should be or the person you were told to be, but the person that you know when you're in a room full of people who accept and love you, where you can't be embarrassed and you can't feel shame because they just love you and you're expressing yourself and you're dancing like no one is watching. The it's in those moments, that's the person that they want. The world wants to come out. And if we need to do some healing to, to heal whoever hurt that person, we'll do some healing. But that person is who the world is waiting on. What's the worst they can say? No. What do you lose then? We all have a purpose. We all have a calling that never goes away, regardless of what happens in life. It's, it's on our heart. It's on our spirit for the entire lives that we, that we live And in order to live it out, we got to just be ourselves and just be who we are, not someone else. So freeing. Oh my gosh. That's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's great words of wisdom that we can all pull from. All right. Last thing we like to end with is a would you rather question, just something fun. Um, And so today our question is, 
Would you rather be able to talk to your seven-year-old self or your 70-year-old self? Seven all day. Seven all day. I think my goal will be it. My goal will be to make sure that when I'm 70, there isn't a ton of difference between how I would approach the conversation with the seven-year-old and the 70-year-old. I, th- that The core me, I think, is formed. I think the core all of us is formed when we're young. And the, the world tries to beat it out of us, <laughs> right? Um, but we got to get back to that. So I'd want to talk to that seven-year-old self because that's where all my resourcefulness is at. And hopefully the 70-year-old is living that out. I agree. I think that I would pick seven-year-old Sarah Caroline because I think 70-year-old, I feel like she might tell me too many things about what might happen in my life. So I think if I could go back, I would just like, I don't even think I would tell seven-year-old me a lot of information, but I think I would just like encourage her and just spend time with her and get to know like my inner child self, because Mm -hmm. I feel like we're all trying to do that every day, you know, work on being more in touch with that version of ourselves. It's funny because before we sat down and had this interview, I was like, Oh, 70 for sure. I have so many questions. I need advice about this, this, and this. But now thinking about all the work that I've done and talking to you about it, I think I'm going to have to go with my seven-year-old self too, just because I feel like I'm just now getting back to her and like getting to know her. And so I feel like she needs a little bit more attention and love. So organize your life with people in your life that celebrate her and you can't go wrong, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of us being intentional about living out that true self, you know, the inner child, but also living, we, we need community. We need people around us that accept that that, that little girl, that little boy and go, I, I really like you. Like I, I want more of you around. And when you start celeb- when you start organizing your life with that, that's when it becomes super fun because it's like, there's nowhere I go where I don't feel embold- emboldened and empowered to be me. And then life gets really exciting with the choices I make as a result of that. I love that. And just for our listeners um, who've probably listened and been so encouraged to this episode, where can they find you and connect with you? Yeah, the, the only platform that I'm really spending much time investing in is Instagram, and that's still somewhat minimal. I've, uh, but yeah, Dr. Mondo, D R M O N D O, um, on Instagram. That's the place where I'm most active. You could find me there. And then I would, I would highly encourage you to also follow cheat code C H E A T C O D E on Instagram as well. And, um, you can look us up also, uh, cheat the cheat code.org as our website. And, um, you can learn more about the work we're doing. The, the vision for cheat code is basically to create, um, a mental health field that, that has higher trauma IQ, um, and all the systems, you know, so we look to, to train and consult with systems like cities and sports teams and healthcare companies to give them more of a trauma IQ that infiltrates their team culture. And then we want to have individuals, the opportunity to increase their mental strength. And we believe that healing is actually part of strength. Everyone told us that to talk about our feelings or to ask for help was weak. Nope. The cheat code is found when you really are vulnerable enough to ask for help and you get that help and then you just continue to level up. So those are the things we're looking to do, um, including getting that access to everyone because we believe that access to really effective mental health care is a human rights issue and that everyone deserves that just like they deserve clean water. So uh, those are the things we're doing and you can check us out there. No, I can't wait to see what the world is like when our grand grandkids are running around. Like, I feel like everyone's going to have so much therapy and access to everything. It's going to be amazing. Well, you know, more than anything, I think what I've learned here today is that we're making it a lot easier on them. I mean, you know, we're having to clean up the messes that, you know, seven generations ago did, you know, we're, if we could just give them, if, if we can give them the opportunity to only deal with their stuff and not ours from all this intergenerational trauma that's passed on, then we're doing them a big favor. So this is a generation that's really taking the opportunity to stop uh, the trauma from being passed down any more than it needs to. So our homework for our listeners would be one, do some work on yourself Two, check in on your men and three, go to our show notes and find you on Instagram and find cheat codes. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you too for making space 
thank you for letting me be uh, the first man outside of the family to, to join you in your space. Um, thank you too, for just being, being leaders in this, right? Like you're living it as a family, but then you're also living it out loud and being vulnerable enough to share that out loud. And I'm telling you, you know, you have listeners that are going to start doing the same as a result of, of your bravery and courage to do that. And it makes a difference. So thank you. Thank you you. so much. Well, I'm so glad to know you and have gotten to connect with you. And um, I look forward to following along on your journey and all the amazing things that you're doing. So stay in touch. We'll see you at a Titans game. Yes. Thank you so much.